Sydney Massey's techno race jumper competes with obligatory low-frequency bass created in Stafford with assistance from Nexus 21, allegedly recorded on a four-track in two hours. This has enough power to destroy the most expensive washing machine. WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Let the bass kick. I bet. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today's Living Writers interview with Carlos Ruiz Zafon was taped at an earlier date. Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Uh, he's in town with his latest novel, The Angel's Game. Welcome, Carlos. Hello. Thanks for coming here to Ann Arbor. Thank and, you for having me. And being here at WCBN. In the Thank you. Pleasure. Studio. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> uh, well, um, to start us off, uh, I will read Carlos's uh, biography in the back of of the book. He's, as I said, he's here. Um, he's in the U S touring for the angels game. Um, a novel, um, his, his, uh, his one that's actually a prequel to his, his huge phenomenally successful book, the shadow of the wind. Um, all right. So Carlos Ruiz Zafon, author of the shadow of the wind and other novels is one of the world's most read and best loved writers. His work has been translated into more than 40 languages and published around the world, garnering numerous international prizes and reaching millions of readers. He divides his time between Barcelona and Los Angeles. Again, welcome Carlos. Thank you. And now we can fill in maybe a bit more of your biography here. Yeah, my glorious biography. <laughs> well, the, my, my, yeah, I'll give you the short version without the gory details. Oh, come on, let's get yeah, gothic. Get, get gothic. I'll, we'll save that for later. Uh, I was born and raised in Barcelona, in Spain, and, and I lived there until I was uh, 20, 20, 26 years old. From from that moment on, I, I started to travel. I ended up living in California for, for a few years. And nowadays, um, I'm living, I don't really know where the, the book says that I'm dividing my time between Barcelona and Los Angeles, and, but I'm not sure that's true. Uh, I really don't know. I've spent time in different places, so I'm constantly moving around. And it right seems now, like Berlin's in the mix, and too. And Berlin, and Paris, different places in Europe. I also spend time here in the United States. So I'm, I'm, I'm keeping mobile at the moment. So I, I hope in the future that I can stay put in one place because it's starting to get confusing. But right now, I'm moving all around. And I've always been a writer, a working writer. I published my first novel in 1992. And uh, since then, I've been I've been earning my living writing 
for for a short time, uh, I work also as a screenwriter, uh, something I don't do anymore. Thank God. You know, I, I think I bought my my own freedom back, like the slaves that bought their freedom, so to concentrate on my own personal work, my books, and and that's it. That's what I do. I'm just uh, just a working writer. And um, well, well, let's talk about that. Like, what does working writer mean to you? To me, working writer is. Somebody... It seems like it's changed throughout, like the different when you were a screenwriter, it was yeah. Well, different... the, the screenwriting thing was something that I did for a few years uh, because naively I thought at the time I had published my first novel, and I thought that maybe I could do some kind of mercenary writing on the side, kind of anonymous, that would allow me to not to compromise my own fiction, that that would buy me the freedom to write the books I wanted to write because I would not be compromised in trying to write stuff that I that I would write just for commercial reasons or things like that. And I thought, you know, I could do that on another field, which is not my personal work, is work for a hire or something on the side. And that was my idea. It turned out that that was not such a good idea. And... Uh, but you were good at it, nonetheless, Carlos. Like, is when you were in, because a lot of people go to LA with mm-hmm. with just the, the the goal to be to yeah, break into Yeah, I guess writing. Los Angeles is a magnet for people who want to reinvent their lives or want to make it or want to, you know. It's uh, the the thing about film about any creative endeavor is that many people are called and very few are chosen. It's kind of a cruel thing. You you want to give your life to something, to, to the movies, to music, to literature, whatever that is, to art. And these tend to be kind of cruel mistresses and that don't necessarily love you back, even though you may love them. And a lot of people are disappointed or a lot of people destroy their lives or get lost in some kind of limbo trying to, to reach for the dream that never really comes. And, uh, and and there's a lot of drama and tragedy sometimes. And when you spend some time in Los Angeles, you see that a lot of talented people who are working hard and trying to, trying to get somewhere, and it's just not possible. And you know the chips are again are stuck against you, and, and it's a complicated thing. So, but you were, but yet you were able to do. I that. was able to to work for a while, although I wouldn't I wouldn't consider my 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 experience successful in the sense I thought that. One of the things I, I've learned about the screenwriting and the film business is that it's an extremely social environment. And one thing is the work you do, but then another thing that it's even as important is how you socially manage that and how you interact socially with, with the particularities of the business. And and you need to have a special discipline to that and, and be practical and to... And to know how to, and I have a problem, which which is that sooner or later I end up saying things that I should not say, and I I mess up politically. I say things that you know that are supposedly non. Everybody, even if everybody knows they're true, or supposedly they're unspoken truths. And one one of the things about interesting things about the film business is that sometimes you get the impression that that everybody lies about everything, but even about things that apparently are inconsequential. It's like it's. I don't know, it may be, it's pouring out there. It's at the storm of a century. And then everybody's saying, wow, it's such a beautiful sunny day. And say, it's not. What's 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 the point of it? It's, doesn't matter. You can say it's raining. It's okay. It, there's. I, I understand lying about some things. You see the motivation. You are lying about something. There are big interests there. But sometimes there are all these lies about everything. Is it? Have you have to lie about everything all the time? It's very tiring, you know, to live constantly under this web of lies about everything, and and. 
and and sooner or later you mess up and you say things you shouldn't be saying or or you you break the the, the protocol or things like that and and I always knew that I, I don't know I I didn't have I think it requires a special talent to to survive and to to navigate in, in that kind of environment and I just didn't have it I wish I had but I didn't have it and I think uh, in the Angels game you actually make some um, you take some sort of jabs at the industry or some of the, the, the well, people and, 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 and films in general even though th- your work itself is very visually driven like it is it is I, I don't have any trouble you know I love films I think the medium of film is fantastic itself and I think that film and, and TV it's filled with with extraordinary talented people trying to do and creating sometimes extraordinary work but if there's something about the business environment of the entertainment industry that for some reason attends to, to, to go in that model. I don't know. Probably there's a good reason for it. Otherwise, if there were, would be a more efficient way to run it, uh, that would be the case, but it's not. Right. But it's interesting because it also reminds me of uh, the, the underworld, the city's underworld of Barcelona that you well, actually and, write about. And, and in many ways, in yeah, century. one of the things I did is in the Angels game, we have the story about this writer in the 1920s in Barcelona who writes uh, under a pen name this kind of uh, serials, this penny dreadful gothic adventures called The City of the Damned. And he's writing for a couple of pirate publishers who are exploiting him. And he's essentially burning his youth and his health writing these books. So were you feeling this way I, I, I felt that I, I took elements <laughs> elements from my experience as a screenwriter because right. I, my experience in publishing and writing books has, has nothing of that. I've been able, luckily, to, to all the novels I've published, all the books I've written, where what I wanted to do at the time, that, 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 that I take full responsibility for, that, for them. But I, I wanted to give him this kind of, when, when some writers are under pressure that you are doing work for hire, that you have to write for other people where other people want you to write. I took some from my experiences as a screenwriter, which I think could be connected to that, and I gave it to the character. So in many ways, even though in that case it, it, it's focused on books, in many ways this is writing this kind of anonymous serials, kind of gothic over-the-top Grand Guignol things. And a lot of that, a lot of the emotions he's feeling, a lot of the contradictions, a lot of the conflicts going on in his life are come from my experiences as a screenwriter. And and literally, in some ways, selling your soul to and in the angels game, there's there's quite there's the boss and who's who's like yeah, almost some a figure kind, of yeah. There's this mysterious uh, guy, the there's, devil, or it, it, it's <laughs> a mysterious polisher. When the, when this writer David Martin, he uh, he's at some point he thinks he's he's losing everything. He's he's had a very complicated life. He loses his father. He has one of these Dickensian child ch- childhoods in which he loses his father to the political violence of the early 20th century in Barcelona then his mother abandons him and he he has to he he grows up in, in, in extreme circumstances and at some point he becomes a writer and he has this man who's his mentor who is a famous writer who helps him but there's also something some secret hi- hidden inside this relationship that he won't find out until later but at some point in his life he feels that he's at the end of his rope that he's desperate that the world has betrayed him and at this at this point this mysterious character this publisher from Paris Andreas Corelli appears in his life and offers him a fortune to write a book unlike any other that has ever existed. A book that is going to alter the way people believe, even the things they believe in. A book that essentially could become the foundation of a new religion. And he, uh, at the moment when he thinks he's going to die, where he's desperate, he 
he's, even even literally his yes, health he, is failing his health his is failing he numbered. thinks he's gonna die he thinks that everybody has deserted him he feels that the world has betrayed him he's full of spite and resentment and fear so he desperate accepts this faustian bargain although he suspects that the motives of this character this mysterious polisher from paris are, are far from clean and and he takes this offer he cannot refuse in many ways. And of course, as soon as he does, he realizes that he's made a huge mistake. So he's then is going to be pulled into some kind of labyrinth of murder, intrigue, obsession, in which he's going to try to escape from this. But uh, things get more and more complicated, and he gets pulled down this rabbit hole, this labyrinth of mystery that is going to be very sinister, and he's and everybody around him is going to be pulled into, so, into so how, it as well. How, when you're writing the first draft of this, Carlos, how are you keeping track of all all these these threads, these different lines that you're sort of throwing out in in these pieces? How well, can you walk I, us through I, a bit of that? Yes, or? I think that the way I work, and I, I tend to write this this novels that have a in terms of a structure are complicated. They have many characters, many things, many plot lines are very plot-driven. Many things happen. There are many subplots. So what I try to do is, even before I start, I think that you have to approach it sometimes as if it were some kind of battle, like a military strategy. And what you do in, in a battle is that you, you show up there prepared with a strategy, but the first thing you do about the strategy is that you have to react to whatever is going to happen. So you have to change it as it goes. So you have an original plan and you have to change it. What I do is I try to, I think I, I for the kind of fiction I write, I need to know what I'm doing. I cannot. I think there's some kind of fiction in which, for instance, the reader explores it as, as some kind of, a, um, even as a reader of his or her own work, in which you're you're just writing down things that come from inside of you. You don't really know where they're coming from, and then later on you try to go back and find some form to that and shape it, and and, and you're exploring a mood story. or a feeling, or but that's a kind of fiction. That's not what I'm trying to do. I think what I'm trying to do is take the reader on a journey. And, and and then I, I, I need to know what I'm doing and I need to be prepared. I need to know where the journey starts, where it ends and, and where are all the stops and all the all the complications and all the layers and the different meanings and all the different in the structure and, and this thing. So before I start working I have all these things pretty pretty clear in my mind. Do you map them out? How I do. I do map them out. I create very different lists of elements and, and different layers in the story. But then at some point, as a star working, what you realize is that no matter how de detailed your outlines may be, what you find out is that it's when you realize things that you find the real problems in, 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 in the structure or every moment, every beat, every scene, every look, every image requires different layers of elaboration. And in there you find new challenges, new problems, and these new problems imply new solutions that you could not foresee before. So then you have to react to that, and then you get new ideas. New scenes. And, and new mm -hmm. scenes or different ways of approaching things or building things or constructing things a new perspective. So this creates also ripple effects in all directions because when you start changing things, you have to change more things. So essentially what I do is I rewrite everything to death. And it's rather than writing just one first draft and then going back, I'm, I'm always working on a draft that is a work in progress. So I'm constantly rewriting that. And when I'm done, I'm done and it's locked. And then nobody touches a comma. Let's take a short break sure. and we'll be back. Um, you've got Living Writers on WCBN FM um, today. Carlos Ruiz Zafon, his novel, The Angel's Game. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you've got living writers. Today on the program, Carlos Ruiz Zafon and his novel, The Angel's Game. I'm T. Hetzel, and you, this, you know, Carlos's name might be familiar to you, um, as it is around the world, basically. He had um, a huge success with his, his, um, his first novel, The Shadow of the Wind. And I, there's an asterisk there, because you've been writing novels um, that were classified yeah, actually, as young adult. Yeah, actually, The Shadow of the Wind is right. the, the first novel translated into English, but it's oh. my fifth novel. And before Shadow of the Wind, I published four other books. And and that was the Fog Trilogy, right? Yes, with the, the, first, the first three of these books, the first of one is finally, they were not translated into English because for many years they were trapped in this kind of mysterious legal battle between publishers and kind of bleak housing intrigue that was never ending. <laughs> finally, all that got solved and, and, and the, the rights could be sold. So now they're going to be published worldwide and they're going to be start, starting to be published here in the United States by Little Brown next year. And the first one of them is, is called The Prince of Mist, which was the very first novel I published in 1992. And this was a novel that originally was published or got an award for young adult fiction. What does mean? I, I never knew what young adult means. I remember when I was a young adult, I would read anything but but what had the label of young adult. And I think a lot of young readers want to read, just not, not something that seems to condescend to them. But sometimes there are these collections or these labels, or at least it's it's helpful to put things in different parts of the bookstore. What does it mean? I don't know. I was, was just writing books. And these were books of mystery, of adventure, of romance. And they appealed to young people, and they appealed to older readers as well. I wrote three of these novels, and then I wrote a fourth novel called Marina, which in many ways was a hybrid. And I think it's when I realized that I needed to white the canvas, that that kind of young adult uh, label, which I always felt it was a fake, that I was faking it, trying to pass for something I was not, that it re- was kind of containing me. And and at the time, I started working on the very first novel that to me was going to have no labels, no limitations, was going to be exactly what I wanted to do, and that was uh, Shadow of the Wind. And that eventually became the first novel to be published into English. So, but when you began writing, Carlos, you didn't have the intention of writing a story that you felt would be um, more aimed at younger audiences. So, how were you? And what, like, how? So, was it that you were? I don't know. I don't mean to sound cheesy here, but like growing as a writer in some ways, so that you began to feel contained well, by it. You're or? always growing as a writer. I think what happened is because I was a working writer, and when the Prince of Mess does the this first novel became published in Spain originally, and it became pretty successful. I think because I was a working writer and because the book was successful and I was making a living writing books, uh, I became very conservative and very cautious. And you know how hard it is to make a living as a writer. So you so worked you, within that world so again. So you, you see, well, I'm going to jump from a train that, that is already going somewhere. And of course, you become concerned about that. And you become concerned about running away from, from, from a success you found. And I think because of that, it, I cannot blame anybody. I myself put in, put myself in the position in which I continue writing these supposedly young adult novels, which I never felt they were entirely young adult. I was constantly thinking, now oh, somebody's going to bang in my door at three o'clock in the morning and would say, "You freeze, hands up! You be, I'm going to be exposed as a non-young adult writer because I always thought that I was faking it. I was just trying. I wasn't writing thinking of young people. I was trying 
trying to write the best stories I could. And they had mystery, they had adventure, so young readers liked them. Were they similar, Carlos, to how the characters in, in, in both The Shadow of the Wind and The Angel's Game, yeah, we, I think we have they younger, have, I think, I think, they start as young people, yeah, uh, maybe. With, with younger people, with young, but, but I think they were similar. They came from the same world, and uh, they had the same flavor. They had this kind of gothic stylization that is common to everything I write. And uh, they were part of it. And of course, as you grow as a writer, I think as, as, as you advance, as you write new books, you learn many things. You learn from your mistakes. You, you evolve and you learn to, to, to your, your skill uh, expands and, uh, and you're able to do more and to achieve things that perhaps a few years before you didn't really know how to realize. So, so are you able to actually articulate what those those things were when you made the like the promise to yourself to 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 write the shadow of the wind yeah i think at the time uh, when i started working on shadow of the wind what happened uh, it was some kind of crossroads in my life i realized that i had been for for quite a few years writing books that were not exactly all i wanted that i had put on my on myself limitations because of this success i had found in that genre but what was missing then um what's i just matter i would say of a scope or freedom or 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 not necessarily you know be able to write whatever i wanted include all the issues all the themes all the tones i wanted and not having to be concerned if this would be appropriate right. for young adults and some say you know yeah. maybe or maybe not i don't care it's just appropriate for readers I'm, and what i always wanted to do and what i i write for people who like to read period without any labels and and for all sorts of people who like to read there are people who are young who are old people who read only literary fiction people who read thrillers people who read science fiction people who wouldn't be caught dead reading science fiction people who read non-fiction or poetry doesn't matter if you like to read i write for that kind of people and try to write books that for the story the story the is story, primary the characters the language mm-hmm. the, the 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 atmosphere everything for the texture of the language of the style of the story, the adventure, the fun. What I'm trying to write is things that are fun to read, that that impact you, that engage you, that seduce you, that get inside your brain and your heart and move you and stay with you after you close the book. So just for readers, you know, people who love books. And there are all sorts of different books and all sorts of different readers. And I write from them all. When I was writing young adult fiction or so-called young adult fiction, I felt that I was putting myself some kind of limitations or some kind of, uh, you know, a pre- pull the brake here because you think you shouldn't go in that direction. Or, or don't expose that part of human or, nature. Yeah, or, or things that are maybe there are some elements. So, although I'm very fond of these books I wrote back then and they're my creatures and, and I can see my evolution through them, at some point I realized that, that I wanted to, to be more free to do whatever I wanted and it also was the time when I, I had been working as a screenwriter for a few years and I was kind of fed up. I felt that I had gone down the wrong road that that I, that I had messed up my life and I felt you know I've been been a working writer for for many years now but I've never give given myself the chance what I really want to do and see for once in my lifetime I think I I've earned the right I, I bought myself you know the time to to work on something without thinking of anybody so were thinking. you able to take like time off from yes, the screenwriting and I, just the, focus on the yeah, daily at writing at the time i was i was working on a on a script for a producer and i asked him please fire me and he he <laughs> said why say why because you're going to go and write one of your books and i say yes please fire me you're going to fire me sooner or later you know it and i know it 
fire me now and we can save each other a lot of aggravation and we stay friends. Graciously, he fired me and we stay friends to this day. So it was a Hollywood ending, a nice Hollywood sweet happy ending in which he fired me and so I was able to go work in Shadow of the Wind. And so so that was, you were in Hollywood, probably California, and then you made yes. the move the, back to Barcelona Not to really. do the writing? I, sta- I, stayed, I stayed in Los Angeles for a while because I had a home there, I had a life there, I had many friends and I had spent there and, and California became home to me. And did it make it easier to, to write in the imaginary, uh, like a historic time of Barcelona for the for um, the Angels game, the 1920s and 30s, because um, it takes place in Barcelona in that yes. time period. Did, was that something that maybe helped to to keep I th- it separate? I think sometimes distance allows you. I think I can write about Barcelona wherever I am because I was born there, I was raised there, and uh, and and uh, that's my hometown. I'm a product of the city, so it, it's it's inside of me wherever I go. So I could go to Calcutta and I. And to me, I have this kind of always joking. I have like DVD memory, like HD DVD memory. Okay. So I have the entire place inside of my mind, and 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 I can I can write about it wherever I am because it's 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 part of me. And but I think that sometimes when you put distance with a place, with your hometown, with the place you were born and raised. Um, this this allows you to, to, to have some perspective and I think it allows you to understand much better your relationship to that place, exactly why you react to it in a certain way. I think that is why quite often a lot of works are, that we deem emblematic of a place or a time have been written from a distance because I think you may then go back and then when you go back to that place, you see it differently, you see it in a more objective way. I think it's like if you're looking at your hand, you put your hand in front of your face, you don't even know what that is. It's so close. If, if you move it away, you start seeing the lines in your hand, your fingers, the, the outline of it, and you know what it is. It's a hand. You understand, And then you realize it's part of your body. It's attached to your arm. It's attached to your body. And I think the same thing happens with the places that we come from, that sometimes putting some distance allows us to, to, to understand them better, understand ourselves better. And then we are able to go back if we want and to see in a more, I think, objective light. And when you're writing about a place or you're using a place uh, as a part of your fiction, I think it's important that you understand it, that you're not blinded by the proximity, that you need to really know why is going on there so you're able to get to the heart and core of it and and be able to use the soul of the place. Yes, and we're going to take a short break and we'll be back to hear more from from Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Um, His novel, The Angel's Game, I'm T. Hetzel, you've got living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be back.
listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, his novel, The Angel's Game, on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, I should say that we've, we've, we're talking on the 23rd of June, 2009, and thanks to Alex Bellhodge, uh, the intrepid engineer um, behind glass. Uh, so, so Carlos, um, I was wondering, uh, you mentioned, and if you're just joining us, we've, we've been having a great conversation about, that's been going in, in many directions, so we've got lots ahead to talk about. Um, you mentioned gothic stylization um, for what you do. You said, this is just what I do, whether you're writing something that other people are labeling young adult or, 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 or the, the two books that we have in, translated into English, The Shadow yeah. of the Wind, uh-huh. The Angel's Game. Um, so what... What does that mean to you when you're you're imagining that? Like how in your mind, when when you're creating, what are you building with that gothic stylization? Well, the, the gothic is uh, something that you know it can be. It's a wide range of things. So I think it, when we mention the gothic, some people may visualize a lot of things. I don't know the films of Tim Burton or the Victorian gothics, the Victorian epics from Dickens to Wilkie Collins to to, to Bram Stoker, Dracula. Or there are many things to me. I think the gothic, to me, the way I understand it, is a very broad thing. And it's a, it's a way of using the aesthetics of creation, in this case literature, use imagery, use styling, uh, in a way to charge everything with meaning, in a way in which you're trying to use atmosphere, you're trying to use light, you try to use everything and, and charge it with meaning, with a dramatic context and dramatic purpose. So you start playing around even with the weather, with light, with sound, with smell, with the clothes, with the everything. And all these things that maybe in regular fiction would be just clothes or light or the weather or it rains, it just rains. To use all these elements and charge them with extreme stylization and trying to with charge them with meaning to provide them with a dramatic purpose. And, and of course, this this also filters through this kind of very stylized, very... Um, Sanders always playing around with this notion of the vaguely sinister, the Baroque, the complex. And, and, and it comes from many things. I think it comes from many different fields, from many different uh, aesthetics. It, it may go from the 19th century traditional, the, the origins of the Gothic novels, of course, but then it goes through the 20th century to the invention of noir, to, to the German expressionists, to many different things that I think add to, to, to the world of what we understand, what, what we call the gothic. It's the way of looking at setting, but also looking at characters. It is. It's a way of, of playing at characters. It's a way of trying to create drama that is that works on many different levels that sometimes uses uh, elements of the maybe of the magical or the supernatural or the perhaps supernatural or, and it, it's, it's trying to, 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 I think intensify the way we look at the world in which everything may have a meaning, in which a piece of furniture has a character, in which everything it's 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 charged and electric and touches. And also it allows us to play with many symbolic elements, with many metaphorical elements. And this I think provides uh, a lot of weapons for the writer and literature to, to tell the stories in a more complex and a richer way because mm-hmm. everything can be used and everything can be charged with meaning. And that this is how I understand the Gothic rather than just uh, 
uh, static bay with sinister people or vampire looking people you know there, there's, of course that's part of the gothic but but I think it's the gothic can be found in many things in literature we found the great the great American gothics of Joyce Carol Oates and there's no super necessarily supernatural elements in that but there's a strong gothic uh, uh, aesthetic to that and, and if we go to the, the field of film we find the gothic for instance in, in, in great masterpieces like Blade Runner. Blade Runner is a fantastic gothic, or the films of Tim Burton, or many things like that. You know, they, they, these places, and if we go back to, I think Blade Runner is a great example because the light, the sound, everything, every glance, every object is charged with meaning, with atmosphere. Everything is dripping with atmosphere, and the whole thing acquires some kind of almost mythological proportions. All these issues about these people who don't want to die are trying to find their creator. The whole thing becomes mythic, becomes bigger. And I think this is one of the things that the Gothic allows you to do, this intensifying of the world and trying to create a dramatic context that it's that it's filled with possibilities and they're exciting and, and, and it can be frightening and and, 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 and always extremely beautiful. And cruel to, as to well. Cruel yeah. and, and beautiful, it, even beautiful. In, in, in its darkness, yes. in its contrast of shadow and light, in, in the found darkness that it can and I think it allows us also to explore these dark corners of the human soul through many different ways so so I think that's to me is that a way of being honest as well like when you say the dark corners of the human soul Carlos do you mean that this 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 way of writing this charged atmosphere allows you to find at the core of what's the most the truth of what's being human I think, I think, or, or is yeah. that not important well, I think it's very important I think it's very important that, that when you're trying to the most important elements in, in literature of any kind is it's in the characters we, that's what we remember about fiction great characters and what's inside of them and when you're creating characters and sometimes characters can be human but sometimes characters are a place or, or a time or an object, but this this these things, I think what what, what it allows us is, is is to really explore them to the to the deepest extent, and and to find many elements and those things that maybe in a different genre it could be harder to reach, and and I think that's basically is is bringing the wider the widest possible palette to your colors to the colors you're using and that also allows you to the widest palette to paint the shadows and the darkness in the human heart and also the good things in human nature and I think this this is a very interesting thing for, for a writer for somebody who makes up stories about people about the classic themes of literature about well, the well you the have book. classic themes like dealing with love in, in yeah, both love of these and novels love like, and jealousy and, and, and passion that's and not hatred able and to be passion. realized yeah even. and man, many of these yeah. things that are part of human life or are part of our everyday experience and these are the classic themes of literature traditionally this is what literature has been dealing with which is essentially human nature our emotions our goals our desires our fears the things we do why we become the people we become why we fear some things why we behave the way why we believe in certain things all these things that literature is trying to explore and, and make drama of I think this is what also what I'm trying to do I'm not inventing anything new I'm just trying to continue with what I think are the greatest themes 
themes and literature, but I try to do it with through this through this approach, trying to use all these elements from we could call the engine engineering of storytelling that allows us to stylize, to use many symbolic elements, to use many metaphorical elements, and to create a, a dense atmosphere that somehow traps you and seduces you and, and pulls you inside the story. When you're writing, then is it in in one of the numerous working drafts that you mentioned earlier that you're going back and and working this into it? You're thinking, well, we have we have a night here, but we don't need just a night. We need a storm in the night, or is that is that what you're doing? Yeah, like in future drafts, every, like you're every, just going back. And everything when I'm when I'm writing every single detail, I, I'm very aware of it, and I'm trying to to use it to to provide it with some kind of purpose, dramatic purpose right? in the story. But when does it get into the drafts, Carlos? That's what I'm wondering. Like as because you, you're saying that it gets from there, the beginning. I yes, think because okay. the intention of it is from the beginning. But then it's how exactly you fine tune that, how you uh, achieve it, or how you push it to the point where you think, well, this is as as, as far as I can get well, it. Is this it is, ever too much? I think ever, I think yeah. you, you have to you have to know exactly what you're trying to achieve. I think one of the things is that you're trying to achieve something, you're trying to communicate something, you're trying to inspire certain emotions, certain reactions in the reader. So you have to know exactly what what things to use and what things not to use. And I think at some point you have to be the judge of, is this doing what it's be supposed to do? And at that point, that's when you leave it there. It's like, it's, it's, or, and trust it. And you have to trust it and you have to trust yourself and to the best of your ability. I think that, of course, you have limitations and writing is always a struggle against your own limitations, against the limits of your skill, your craft, your talent. But at some point, you have to know when, when things cannot be made any better by you. Not that they cannot be made be made any better but you don't know how to make them any better to you this is as far as you can take it that's the point where you have to stop you say this is it and 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 then move on and then work on new things and then continue continue building the, the whole thing but i think that's the point you cannot mess with something forever because then you have lost your objectivity your point of view you're just making changes because you don't know where you're going you have to know where you're going you have to know what you're trying to achieve and when you feel that you cannot get any closer to your goal that that's where as far as your talent lets you go that's when you should stop and say okay this is as far as i can get it and and how do you so and so you have to trust then that moment and with the the writing but but then how do you pick a translator because you've worked with um uh lucia graves for uh both both books both novels um but but you're why didn't you choose to translate the book yourself or is it too much um, you want to be writing and creating rather than well, going there, there, back there and rewriting reasons, a book there are many reasons for that one is that I don't want to write the same book twice you're already written that book so I don't necessarily want to write it again and I think that because I've been extremely fortunate to be able to work with Lucia which is very talented Lucia is not, is not really a translator herself she has translated sometimes the work of her father Robert Graves but she's a novelist in her own right and uh, she just happened to read years ago Shadow of the Wind when it came out in Spain on the very first week of publication. And she contacted my agent and said, I want to translate this book. 
And I was uh, wondering how the relationship came uh, about. This is how it started. And at the time, we didn't even have an offer from a po- an English speaking publisher. So um, that was the thing. And later on, when there was offers and we started talking about translation, a number of preeminent translators from Spanish into English submitted a sample chapter to more or less give an idea what would be their work. And I remember that none of them were working, they were terrible. And I suggested, let's go back to Lucia because I think she she could do a much better work. And then Lucia submitted a sample chapter that wasn't really working yet, but but she knew it. She was aware of it. And, and, and I think she knew that it could be made much better. So I suggested, let's work in a different way. Lucia can start working on a first draft and she can consult with me as much as she wants while she's working. And after a while, she sends me some of the stuff and I start reworking it and rewriting it. So we go we keep going back and forth this kind of loop thing and as we were advancing in the translation Lucia started seeing a lot of the things I was trying to achieve and she could get in very fast because she's very smart and very talented so the more we advanced the less necessary was for me to make changes or to rewrite sections because she already knew how to nail them exactly and I think that the, until we got to the point where we felt you know this doesn't read like a translation which is what a, a good translation is sometimes people I think and, and it's very common in in English English language readers, they feel that translators rewrite the books or that they change them. Or sometimes people ask me questions, I see these people are convinced that translators are recreating the books, and that's not the case. A good trans the great tragedy of the translator's work is if when it's done right, it's invisible. It's exactly the same thing. And it's only when it doesn't work that you start feeling that getting that sense of a clunkiness or a kind of a square in there. Yeah, or a, a square wheel going like clock, clock, clock. And you say, oh my God, there's something not working here. I don't know what it is, but it feels odd. That is when the translation is not good. But a good translation, you forget that you're reading something that originated in a different language because. You know, it's exactly there. It's working. It's it. Is that it? It's not a recreation. It's not a rewrite. It's the original. You have to read the original. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Carlos Ruiz Zafon, uh, his novel, The Angel's Game on Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got living writers. And today, Carlos Ruiz Zafon is here. Um, we've been talking a lot about both your books. Uh, and it's kind of interesting. I guess they, uh, has that been the phenomena, Carlos? Because one, um, The Angels Game, even though it was, um, it's the latest um, public, that's what the book you're on yeah. tour for. Uh-huh. It's the prequel. It, it becomes, it comes earlier in time. In, than well, it's the, not necessarily a prequel. Sometimes people ask me, well, what is The Angels Game? It, it's a prequel, it's a sequel. I said, well, it's all of the above and none of the above. It's actually, it's it's a standalone story. The thing is that when I was starting working on Shadow of the Wind, I came with this notion of creating four stories that would be interdependent, but also independent, that could be completely standalone, but that would share a universe, share some characters, share the some elements. Of and that, this is books. the worst, this fantastic gothic dream work of the fin- of the cemetery of forgotten books That's which a is a wonderful idea which is which is this fantastic library hidden a secret library hidden in a palace in the old town of barcelona that is protected by a secret society of people who make sure that books don't disappear that are not destroyed that they try to preserve them forever so this is the heart of these four stories but in many ways my idea was to create four books that could act as some kind of labyrinth of stories a chinese books of fictions that you could enter in four different ways that you could experiment in different ways. If you read one or two or three or four of them in any order, your experience as a reader would be altered and you could find new things and you can find new connection and the puzzle would be constantly keeping rearranging itself. So at first I started with Shadow of the Wind, which was this kind of first act for me, not because the the the, the, the story is sequential, but because to me it was it had the, the feeling of her first act. is the entry into a universe, is the promise, is how we enter and then the second act which is the angels game which is a, a completely stand you, you don't have to know anything about Shadow of the Wind well, to, that, to, that was my experience. to enjoy yeah, I, I it's a completely it standalone story mm. uh, or you could read first the angels game and then the Shadow of the Wind or the other way around and then they would your experience would be altered. But in the case of the of the Angels game, I thought that this would have the feeling of a second act. And second acts are where the plot thickens, where everything gets darker, where things get more complicated, and we are pulled down the rabbit hole before we are able to see the the light at the end of the tunnel. So in many cases, the Angels game it's it's similar to the Shadow of the Wind share some of the characters, some of the locations, but it's a darker story. It's a more sinister story. It's a more complex story. And it's also a story that tries to do something new, which is in the case of Shadow of the Wind, it's a, Shadow of the Wind was a novel that did all the work for you. Essentially, you just would lie, lie down and relax, sit back and relax, enjoy the ride. The Angels game tries to since it's a book, Shadow of the Wind is a book about readers, about books. This is a book book also about books, but about writers, about the process of writing, about the process of storytelling, about the writing life. So one of the things the novel tries to do is take the reader into the story and, and, and have the reader become part of the storytelling process so that the more you advance, the more you enter this labyrinth, you're going to notice that it becomes some kind of hollow mirrors that depending on what you're bringing into the game, the game is going to change and, and things are going to acquire a different meaning. So this is something that was very interesting of trying to do, a book that could be many books at the same time that would work in many layers and depending on who you were and what you had inside of you, this would imply different 
different interpretations of the story. All of them would click. Can you give us an example of that, Carlos? Like, in many like ways, a part of an idea? Well, the, the idea is that we are getting inside the skin of this central character, this David Martin, this writer in the 1920s in Barcelona that gets trapped in this kind of Faustian bargain that is getting more and more sinister. So at some point, we're inside that. The reader realizes that, that that you are trapped inside the heart and soul of this character. And then a lot of the things about the world, about the things that he's ex- experiencing, you start seeing through his eyes. And then you have to decide how you interpret that. What, how do you interpret his moral choices? And then the story can be read as a great supernatural gothic thriller mystery or as a psychological intrigue or as a moral fable or there are many different things and all of these different layers work and and click um, but it's up to you it's up what it's inside of you and and this is going back to an ocean that was mentioned in shadow of the wind at which point one of the characters says that a book is like a mirror and you find in it what you already have inside of you and that's what the angel's game tries to do it tries to put pull you into this hall of mirrors to discover things that are inside of you and 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 take them and make them become part of the story and so do you are you going to keep that original bargain with yourself where you were going to going to write four four books about around the cemetery that that was the idea and i said you know this was an option that said this are going to be each one of them are going to be complex and complicated books to write because each one of them has its own personality its own some flavor its own world and uh, as long as I can interest my, myself into this, into this experiment, as long as I feel that, that there's, there's, there's something in there that I can bring to readers, I will. Well, do you have pieces, Carlos, for example, that um, pieces of storylines that kind of jutted from the Angels game that you've put aside? Yes, that there didn't are. Fit? Actually, I, I have kind of mapped out what is the basic outline of these four books. And in many ways now, we're in the middle of the ride. So... After this, things are, will start to click much more and the puzzle will start to become more obvious and, and, and everything, the complexity of it will start to be more interrelated. Will it, will it become more sinister as well? Like you said, the, like I think the second not necessarily. act, the third and, act. And here I think the Angels, the Angels game probably is the darkest of these books. And I think the other's book, as in the case of Shadow of the Wind, that have darkness and light, have different things that are a combination of many genres, of many tones, of many registers. And I think the one that I always thought was going to be the darkest one was going to be The Angel's Game. The others one are going to have some of the, of course, some of that, but not necessarily as much, I think. I think one of the important things is that you have a true to the story, to the characters, to the world you're trying to, to, to write and communicate to the reader. And sometimes that world is darker. Or And then you have to be honest to that. You cannot say, well, you know, oh my God, maybe I'm going to scare away people. I don't want to do that. Or I want to upset some readers if I do this. Well, it's not that you want to upset anybody, but if you have to do it, to be honest to the story and to the characters, and you have to do it. And, and I think each one of the stories, as you are working on them, you become aware of their, what is their personality. There's something, there's a soul to the story that you have to respect. And would that be, would you say that the soul is then, um, is, is kind of kept for the moment in that main character? For example, in The Angel's Gate, D- uh, David Martin. Uh, well, he's or, a central character. He's the narrator, but there are many other characters. Yes. There are many interactions. But of course, he, in many ways, he provides us, the, he's the vessel for the 
for the for the reader. He's he's the one who's providing us with a point of view. But at some point, we start even questioning his point of view, and we develop our own. That's part of the game of the story. But certainly, that's we enter this world through his eyes, and 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 we we become him. And when we live his life and his pain and his his adventures, and at some point we grow from that. That's that's a little bit of the idea to use a character as a vessel that allows us to get into the story. But then the story acquires a, a bigger dimension, and, and we are part of it. But when you're writing this this next book, then which it seems like you do already have some scaffolding set yeah, about I have, that, I have some a pretty clear idea of it. Although one of the things I realize is each time you start working on these books, and they are kind of complex. A lot of new ideas come up, and a lot, and I like to 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 leave it open. So I think that I need to be very prepared before I start. And the first thing I need to know is part of the preparation is 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 to have to to change everything or react or or to find better solutions. And and you are constantly trying to make it better, to find a way and and to bring new elements. And at some but point you realize it, that, it, that it's done, that it works, and that's it. And then it's one. Well, because you said that there were pieces, when you were speaking about it earlier, Carlos, you said there were pieces that are going to be more coming into clarity. Yes, there are. So. And of course, these things I keep foreseeing and I keep planning and keep planning it. But I also know that there are many more things will come in the future when I start working on the book. So I have like a big blocks, big elements of, the, of this puzzle that I know how it works and I, I keep designing over the years and but a lot more work it's necessary to make all these things click and and, and it's one of the books is when all of the stuff is realized and everything makes sense and everything clicks it's interesting that four seems to be some sort of a number for you at the moment because it was the 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 three in the the, the fog trilogy but then marina and mm -hmm. then you have you're working in this scope of you four there's again a, the sinister pattern here with the four <laughs> now it's the fantastic four i don't know yes it's <laughs> I don't or, know. I wonder what will be next. Like, wait, wait could, will, it seems like will you always write in the, the four seasons? <laughs> would be, it's a story about hotels and baroque music. Wow, what a concept! Uh, I don't know. I think uh, I don't know why it's for. It, it's I never thought about that. I, it's just when I was starting, I saw this four different stories, and to me, it 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 made a whole. And and why was that? I don't know. Why why, why four and not three or do you five? Think, could you write a, a a female main character? Do you think? Yes, Carlos? I think so. Okay. Uh, so far, some of the some of the stories. The first was was a coming of age story, and the main perspective was there was a character that uh, that was uh, that was telling about his first his childhood, his adolescence, his first youth, and then he becomes an adult. But essentially, he's talking about this coming of age thing, and he was a boy. And and the second one we have this guy who's a young man, but he he's an adult already. He's in his late twenties or so. But of course, he has a very different perspective on life and things. I think it's important. I think also when you think about the female characters in Shadow of the Wind or The Angel's Game, they're very different because I felt that the way they had to be portrayed had to be different because we we're talking from a very different point of view. In 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 Shadow of the Wind, a lot of the times you you have the perspective of a, either a young boy or a teenager and how he 
discovers the world of women or he how he perceives them so the so the figures or, or the the ideas he has in mind it has to be consistent with that even though he's remembering all that as an adult but he's talking about his emotions at the time and this other case uh, what i'm trying to do is portray how this character david martin sees the world and of course and see how he sees the female characters the women in his life and he sees them differently than and but of course you have to as always you have to be honest to the character you have to try to get to know your character well and then understand the world the way and experience it the world that character would and 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 that i think it's it's, it's essential to to try the character so maybe yes at some point i'm going to experiment with the point of view of a female character why not oh, i just wondered because if you had it mapped out i wondered if that was part of the plan somehow i think that at some point not that some you have of, to <laughs> no some of the some of the other stories are not going to be necessarily centered on one point of view okay. i think so in in this case as both shadow of the wind and the angels game are stories told in the first person there the device of using the point of view of the narrator is a very strong one so you have to be consistent with that you have to filter everything through that character if at some point you don't necessarily use a first person narrator you can broad the, the point of view or, or you can broad the way you enter the characters or you present them so i think that's going to be more the case in the future but I would rather not discuss a lot because then when you start, you know, working on things, you, you change your mind and then you decide that you're going to do it in some other way. Well, you so. don't want to be contained by anyone's expectations. By yeah, and sometimes it happened. I remember years ago, I, I mentioned something that I said I was going to do in a book. And then afterwards, people said, but you said you were going to do that. <laughs> I said, well, I changed my mind. But you said you were going to do it. But yeah, but I changed my mind. But you said you were going to do it. And said, well, I won't ever mention ever again what I'm going to do. When it's done, it's done. And then I don't have to. It seems like like you're being misleading people. I don't want to mislead readers. I'm just, you know, you start working on something and then you change many things and then you incorporate until you feel that that's the best thing you can do. And maybe then it's not necessarily exactly what you said three years before you were going to do, but maybe this is better. I wonder if this will be, um, if, uh, well, does this, uh, does the Gothic and this this world that you're creating, Carlos, does it allow you to do everything you want to do? Because earlier, you know, back when you were the first series, you felt like you were being contained in some way. Like, But does, have you found this structure? Is this allowing yes, you everything I th- you I want? I think it does because it's not only Gothic. I think the Gothic is part of it. But I think what I'm trying to do is write novels that include all the genres, all the literary genres in one. There are at the same time mystery stories, historical novels, romances, love stories, comedies of manners. There are many different things. There are crime stories. There are obsession stories. And, and all of that is, is inside of that, that combine genre, that combine many different things. So I feel really free in that because I think I can do anything and I can touch all the vases. Then I can use all the styles, all the tones, all the register to tell the story in the most efficient and engaging way I know and to provide the reader with the best and more intense reading experience possible. And that's my goal. 
Carlos, thank you for being on Living Writers today. Thank you very much. I hope I'm not in dead writers. It's a good thing to be a living writer. You know, <laughs> exactly. it feels good to be alive. And knock wood, right? Yeah. And and thanks for picking the music. Uh, Carlos picked the the songs that we heard in between. Yeah, um, we had our some wonderful music by Danny Elfman, Richie Sakamoto, a lot of great composers. So you have like here in the vault at the station, you have fantastic music. So it was easy to pick some pieces. Uh, well, thanks for coming to WCBN, thank Carlos. Thank you. A pleasure. You've been listening to Living Writers. Thanks for listening in Ann Arbor for streaming, whether you're in Florida, Chicago, Seattle, Bermuda, wherever you are in the world. Thanks again to Alex Bellhodge. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. You've been listening to Carlos Ruiz Zafon, his novel, The Angels Game. Until next time. Queen. Look at her, it's just a whore. Or maybe a gold digger. But she's a hustler. Yeah, or some sort of intellectual. <laughs> Probably a rimmer. <laughs> maybe a speed freak. A chicken queen. Or a shrimp freak. But but it could be a narc. Yeah, or maybe a beatnik. Or a junkie. Yes, or an acid head. Or a spade. Or just a gigolo. Just a flower child.